Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies, and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV, and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson, and in each episode, we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick, and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode four, we explore another legendary director-composer relationship, that of Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann, with Herrmann's score to the classic 1958 film Vertigo. We begin our dizzying journey into this score with a look at Herrmann's compositional style, along with some analysis of the main themes of Vertigo. We'll also check out some of the possible influences on Herrmann's technique, along with discovering the different ways that Herrmann conjures up the feelings of unease and dread. And joining me, as always, this time from his fancy apartment in New York, is a composer, arranger, orchestrator and amazing conductor. It's Nicholas Buck. Nick, can you hear us from all the way over there? Amazingly, I can, and I'm on the uh, sixth floor, which is the top floor of my apartment building, so I've got a bit of vertigo myself whenever I look <laughs> out the window, so I'm in the mood. Uh, very good, and of course, our third partner in this dive into obsession is writer, critic, university lecturer, and resident Herman expert, it's Dan Golding. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, as you're sort of suggesting, Herman is my thing, uh, absolutely 100%. Uh, so this should be, should be a bit of fun. Yeah, well, I must admit that this is a movie. Uh, we, we started out with a, a couple of uh, pop culture episodes, really, with uh, Indiana Jones and, and Jurassic Park, and we're taking a little bit of a right-hand turn here into a bit of an older classic. And uh, this one, for me, I, I'm really familiar with the music, but not as familiar with how it sort of matches in with the film. So I actually went and uh, picked up Vertigo from the store recently, $10.00. Go check it out. And um, if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with Vertigo, it's go check it out. There's, um, I think it could even be on, on Netflix, um, but you can certainly get it easily from the store and it's really worth checking out because a lot of this music is so intrinsically linked uh, to Hitchcock's images. So I'd really suggest um, listeners go and check it out before you, you listen to this episode. Or maybe this might be a good primer. Mm. Coming into the movie, though, I will say we'll probably touch on spoilers. <laughs> and given it's a Hitchcock film, it's probably not a good idea if you've never seen it before to um, to spoil yourself before going in. Though I'm not sure, can we can we still concern ourselves with spoilers from well, fifty from, years ago? From 1958. <laughs> I, look, I reckon we're safe. I reckon we're all right by this point. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, great. Mm. Uh, right, Dan. Do you want to kick us off with a little bit of history about Vertigo? So it comes in this really interesting period uh, for Hitchcock. He's come to America. He's a British director, um, mainly made his name uh, in England, uh, has come over to America, made a string of really, really interesting and excellent films. And Vertigo comes in the middle of that, uh, really. Um, there's, uh, you know, some some fantastic, fantastic films. There's Psycho, 1960, uh, but dating all the way to The Trouble with Harry in 1955 is the first um, Herman and Hitchcock collaboration. But, he, you know, he's been doing things like Rear Window, like Rope around this point as well. North by Northwest comes later. And this sort of great run of films probably ends with Torn Curtain uh, a little bit later than that in uh, 19... Uh, 
at 66. Um, and that is coincidentally when Hitchcock and Herman stop working together. Uh, maybe maybe I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but Vertigo was seen at the time as a bit of a dud. Uh, people didn't like it, certainly nowhere near as much as they like it today. Um, today, it's certainly seen as, as one of the greatest films of all time. Um, it replaced uh, uh, Citizen Kane, uh, which ironically was another film that Bernard Herrmann uh, wrote the score for. Uh, as the the reliably number one film of the the sight and sound, you know the the poll where they get all these great uh, directors and critics and everybody to to rank their films. Vertigo recently, yeah, deposed uh, Citizen Kane as number one. So today it's seen as brilliant, uh, un, unparalleled in many respects. And and why do you think it didn't resonate with audiences when it was released? I think it's it's a little bit too weird uh, in some respects. Like, um, you know, the Hitchcock brand was this sort of exciting espionage, murder, thriller sort of thing. Vertigo is a lot slower than that. It's much more concerned with the inner workings of the lead characters' minds in many respects and this sort of um, slightly bizarre, slightly unsettling... Um, manipulative, a bit misogynist, um, you know, mystery at the heart of this film, uh, which, you know, it, it, it's not a, a fulfilling film. It doesn't leave you feeling wholesome. It feels you, sorry, it leaves you feeling a little bit icky. I would yeah, say. Maybe that you didn't misspeak. Maybe it does feel you. A yeah, little yeah, bit. maybe, maybe it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It certainly um, is a, um, a bit of a, a yet another Hitchcock masterclass in mm. sort of building dread Definitely. and unease through seemingly normal mm. uh, things. Yeah, throughout and right, the, right the whole from movie. The beginning. Certainly, Herman's score does a lot for that. But I mean, it includes, um, you know, having said all that, it includes a lot of the classic Hitchcock themes in many, many ways. You know, you've got the um, making a woman over into a blonde uh, at, at, at one particular point in the film, which is the most extreme example of the Hitchcock blonde in any of his films. Voyeurism is throughout the film. The idea of the wrong man, of somebody being accru- accused of a crime that they didn't actually commit. I mean, all of these themes are consistent throughout Hitchcock's work, but they really come to the fore in Vertigo in in sort of interesting ways. Um, And so, yeah, you know, people loved it. uh, Subsequently, at the time, uh, had a bit of a frosty reception. Um, And, but I mean, you know, I think as well, it's sort of seen today as the number one Hitchcock and Herman collaboration, I think, in terms of the music. And that's certainly important for us today. I'd say, I mean, Psycho probably comes a close second. I reckon Vertigo is is probably number one for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I surprise myself when I when I say, yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> because really, Psycho has penetrated the, the mainstream or even mm. the pop culture thing for far more than Vertigo has. Mm. And, you know, the shower scene and so on, which I don't think is actually the best music. The best music is elsewhere in the sure. score. But... Yeah. Uh, you know that that whole psycho thing has been sort of played and played and played again, mm. uh, but Vertigo, I don't know. It's sort of just it has a bit of everything mm. in it, and certainly the score um, is really very stunning and um, intricate and such so simple. It's actually mm. like Herman has boiled down mm. um, simplicity itself 
and and put that on the screen and presented it in different ways. Yeah. So definitely. what can you tell us about um Herman's, you know, Herman's compositional style down the way that he he writes compared to say John Williams who mm. we have been checking out for the last few episodes. Absolutely. Well, he's I mean the the most obvious thing that people will notice is that he's far less concerned with melody. Um in fact, a few people I I, I was watching a documentary a while ago and someone said, you know, poor Benny, uh, you know, the 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 way that his friends used to call him instead of Bernard. Um Benny used to uh, you know, couldn't write a melody to save himself and <laughs> I, I think that's not true because Taxi Driver has an amazing melody yes yep. um, but uh, he's much less interested in it and I think for today that's really um, fascinating because uh, you know melody I suppose is is in some respects the most rational side of music mm. uh, and in a film like Vertigo that's not really what we want we want mood and landscapes and sort of this interior music that describes, you know, how the characters are feeling and, and the turmoil that they're undergoing. And that's certainly, I think, the music that we have here. Um, and he talks a lot about landscapes um, in the, the ways that he uh, actually, um, you know, uh, spoke about about composing. And actually, I found this, this really great interview where he described the process, um, Herman does, describes the process of composing for a Hitchcock film. I'll just, I'll just play a little bit of that now right. so we know where we're coming Let's hear from. it. In Hitchcock, one has to create a landscape for each film, whether it be uh, the rainy night of Psycho or the turbulence of a picture such as Vertigo, as against in Citizen Kane, a picture of people within a specific time and uh, how they felt against external events. I mean, of... Uh, attitudes of hatred, love, revenge. And so, you know, I think he's talking there about, yeah, the the need to create a landscape. And he does that in all of his uh, Hitchcock collaborations. In Vertigo, we'll talk a lot about how it works. But in Psycho, of course, it's a score that is only for strings. Uh, and there's, you know, that's how that works in Torn Curtain, which is the, you know, an unused score that he did with uh, Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcock as their last film. Uh, it was supposed to have something ridiculous like 17 French horns and 12 flutes. Yeah, um, yeah, which is the most terrifying combination, yeah, both yeah. from an orchestral management point of view <laughs> and also imagine. from a sound world, you know. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, his music is often not about uh, leitmotif, as we you know spoke with John Williams, with Herman, it's often much more about this creating a sound, a world, a musical landscape um, which the characters inhabit. Yeah, and um, Nick, have you ever uh, you know conducted any of Herman's scores before live? You know the the very first film score I ever conducted live in concert was Psycho, actually. Oh, there we go. But look, I mean, if I had to have a pick of one to do, it would absolutely be Vertigo. Um, it's it's much more rewarding, not only as a score to listen to more than Psycho, but I think um, when you were discussing the film, I think the actual the film and its plot and the way it develops uh, rewards, you know, multiple viewings more than something like Psycho, which more is just like a, you know, a, a shock to the system, like taking a cold shower. Mm. Um, I saw Vertigo just a few weeks ago at the cinema in a glorious restoration, and then just just yesterday again, and I'm still picking up on on things, you know, whether it's Hitchcock's color palette or things in the score or you know facial expressions. It's it's very rewarding. Totally agree. And and I think one of the other interesting things that you see with um, Herman's music as well is the thing that's crucial about him is that unlike these other 
early film composers like Korngold or Steiner is, well, firstly, Herman was born in America and grew up with movies, uh, unlike the, the other two who were emigres from Europe and were sort of bringing this older tradition to film music. But Herman himself, you know, he started by working on radio with Orson Welles. And so I think he has a much more acute ear for what needs music, what doesn't, what the music needs to do and what it actually doesn't need to comment on, what it can hold back from and more appreciation for for sort of silence and restraint. And I think that that really comes through in in Vertigo um, really, really well. There are long stretches in this film where it's really handed over to Herman, you know, to to carry it. Mm. Um, So I think... The, the relationship between Hitchcock and Herman understanding the nature of, of cinema and drama and I guess what is essential to tell a story in any given scene is quite fascinating to, to analyse. So let's check out some music and what better place to start than with the main titles or what Herman calls the prelude and this really does set the tone for the rest of the movie. So I guess what we immediately have there is musical spirals, right, for, for a film about vertigo. Uh, Absolutely. I, yeah. Uh, I mean, they match perfectly Saul Bass's opening credits as well. So that's what that's what we're seeing. The images there are these spirals. Actually, this is an amazing uh, pop culture fact, mm. which, which is very little known. These spirals are the first computer-generated images ever to be put in any film. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. Um, So if you're asking which film, you know, that's a great trivia question. In fact, Mm. I run a movie trivia (laughs) event and I put that in as a question once. Um, If Yeah, Vertigo is the first film to feature an image generated by a computer and it's these spirals that we see here at the start designed by Saul Bass. 
uh, that that you know perfectly match the spiral music of uh, Vertigo. Yeah, they're um, I think they're just really uh, well, they're really beautiful to look at, but the score just matches it so mm. so perfectly. And um, Nick, I'm I'm going to call on your piano skills here, perhaps, but. Uh, those opening sort of you know dun 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 etc. Well, I'm yeah, the a actual major um, chord, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the chord that I guess um, you know Herman's using here is um, what some people refer to as the Hitchcock chord, which is mm. basically um, a minor chord with a major seventh on top. So and plonking them sort of on top of one another. Um, it's a really unsettling thing, and I mean, look, we we hear that chord as a very um, running theme through other Hitchcock films. Take the example of, I mean, Psycho. It opens, it opens the beginning of Psycho. You know, on on strings, for example, it's that same. Is that the same chord? Is it? Oh, they just do. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, it's, yep. a, it's a different different key, but it, yep. um, yeah, it's a minor chord with a major seventh on top, and. Um, it really becomes like almost, uh, uh, it's a very unsettling mood that it creates. And between this and another chord, which is a half diminished, which we can talk about later, Herman really loves playing with uh, with sevenths and uh, I guess giving them to us in a way that is not traditionally classical. Normally we have dominant sevenths um, and I guess getting slightly jazzier, minor sevenths. Whereas here, I guess Herman, uh, well, he could even go further and say there's major sevenths in major chords like this. Um, and here, Herman's kind of mixed them. So it's sort of, it's not quite major, not quite minor, and it's very unsettling. And, and it comes from the harmonic minor, doesn't it, um, Nick? Yeah. Um, I mean, whether whether he's thinking that, I'm not sure. No, yeah, I mean, it's a very different sound world, but that's sort of the, the most traditional scale where the minor chord with a major seven is. And I, I yeah. heard someone describe Herman's music for Vertigo as tonally off-centre. And I just, I feel like that, like it's still tonal. It, we're not talking atonal or, you know, modernist in that sense, but it feels off-kilter. I, I think that's a really good description for, for what's going on here and what you've just described. And really, what what I'm hearing on on you know when those uh, notes you know sort of swirl around in that opening theme, I think it's very difficult to say what key is this in. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't like you could you could pause on any of those notes, and it n- never feels like it's at home. It never feels like you've come a- around to the beginning. And I think that really helps the feeling of sort of unease, the feeling of sort of uh, dizziness and and um, you're not centred. And, uh, you know, that's just totally done through the, the use of um, the fact that none of those chords actually, you know, resolve anywhere. They're constantly moving. And I think he always uses the first note in what we'll, I guess we'll call either the love theme or the obsession theme. There's a note that is not part of the chord that always kind of falls away. Um, at the very beginning, we hear. So you hear, you know, whether it's in the middle of the register or at the bottom, that. 
bottom, bottom. And that kind of, you know, placing an awkward note and then sort of resolving, or is it, is really kind of endemic in the whole, the whole score. And it really helps to underpin, um, I guess, in a slightly melodic way of two notes, um, <clears throat> the unsettling nature of, of all his music. Mm. And I think, I mean, there's just while we're on this opening uh, track, there's something going on with spirals generally um, in, in, in the course of the film. Because if we just go on a little bit further with this with the same intro track, which is Prelude and Rooftop. So once we get to the first uh, opening scene of the movie, uh, we start to see these sequences where uh, the character actually experiences vertigo. Now, I just want to play you quickly what's happening here because it relates to this discussion directly. So, that, what's going on there is we've got two harps that are going up and down in opposition to each other, exactly as we have with Nick on the piano there, with the, 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 the opening sort of spirals of the two chords, the two scales moving upwards and downwards simultaneously. What's interesting about that is that um, there's the famous sort of vertigo shot in the film where, you know, the world sort of seems to spin. You, you guys know the shot that I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's mm. like this... Is um, this the one used in Jaws yeah. when it kind of focuses on Brody? At the that, that's right, beach? that's yeah. right. Yeah. I just thought that was a... Is that called a crash zoom? It is called a crash zoom, yeah. Um, or, you know, a smash zoom or um, the dolly zoom, people sometimes call it. And that's actually achieved... I've actually heard it called a zolly before. A zolly. A, a zoom zolly. and a dolly. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean... Can that, you explain what, what it is, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the zolly actually kind of does it. So it's a zoom and a dolly. So a dolly is when the camera moves forward and a zoom is when the lenses uh, magnify, right? And if you do that at the same time and against each other, so if you pull the camera back while zooming in at the same time, the whole sort of planes and vanishing points of any given shot seem to warp dramatically because you're changing different kinds of perspective simultaneously and and for the camera lens it just looks bizarre and it gives this, this whole vertigo effect where the world seems to spin. And so what, what, how that's achieved is by going forwards and backwards, essentially simultaneously. And so Herman has locked into this with his music, and he's provided us not just with spirals for the opening titles, but for kind of musical spirals um, going up and down with the harps uh, simultaneously in, in the same way as, as the camera is doing it. I mean, so he's doing a musical zolly. Yeah, he's doing a musical zolly, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's really clever. And look, he's, he's also um, doing it with the actual chord. I mean, let's, mm. you know, that, that chord that he uses is basically a major chord stacked on top of a minor chord, sort of like this. So together mm. you get... You know, and with the harps going, <laughs> it's really you know, it's um, it's up and down, it's major and minor. They're these really opposites, kind of fighting at each other. You know, and you can talk about the whole film being about love and death. Even Hitchcock's color palette, what's her name, Madeline's always in green, Scotty's often in red. They're opposite sides of the color wheel. You sort of wonder, you know, is this stuff they discussed mm-hmm. while making it? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly fun to <laughs> to look at. 
Mm. And um, those openings, so you know, it starts with the uh, with the you know the, that swirling thing that we've just spoken about. But then there are those big crashing chords that sort of just come in over mm. the top, and they're often synced up with the names of the actors, actresses, and Hitchcock himself. Mm. And Herman reserves probably the most dissonant <laughs> chord, the the biggest crunch for when Hitchcock's name comes up on the screen. And I, and I always wondered, was that sort of done lovingly or is is, is it sort of to really show that he's the master of, um, yeah. you know, sort of suspense or dread or... I, I think it is done lovingly. I mean, I think maybe it's done with kind of a, a, a tongue planted in cheek, perhaps. Because, um, I mean, uh, for the 1955 film that they did together, The Trouble with Harry, I mean, he titled, eventually went on to title his music for that in a separate suite, um, A Portrait of Hitch. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And I think it's sort of quite loving at this stage they clashed often not yet really by this film but they clashed a bit in Psycho and that they clashed repeatedly in the 60s until 1966 where it all ended acrimoniously but at this point you know uh, I think they, they still very much admire each other, uh, and that, that's probably a nice little uh, musical injury. Because can you, can you think of any other movie score, especially at the start of a film, or at any part of the film really, where the movie score presents the, the actors to mm. the audience? Like their names come up on the screen, and it's just like a you know, accompanied by a prada, yeah, like yeah, yeah. and then it's this yeah. person. Yeah. And like there aren't many. Times, I mean, often there'll just be a score and then you'll have some credits or you'll have some opening credits, but um, Mm. not sort of synced in the same way that this is. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I think that also goes down to the the other creative genius working on the sequence, which is Saul Bass, again, uh, you know, who's this famed uh, title designer uh, and sort of production designer generally. But, I mean, I think, you know, he knows what he's doing as well in this. And, I mean, it's also, you know, we're getting a close-up of Madeline's, body uh, in yeah. this sequence as yeah, well yeah. and it's kind of the film being written over the top of her as well as the music don't you also think that this this opening sequence before they start running on the rooftop so we're just mm. talking about the prelude part of this cue is actually the entire movie mm. the entire movie is contained well. within yeah. that opening bit <laughs> mm. yeah i mean uh, nick you you agree with me i mean it's it's absolutely i mean the film really is is kind of two halves they both end with the death uh, well, I guess you could say the film starts with a death as well, with the policeman falling off the roof. Mm. Um, but yeah, that that kind of that arc that leads up to the first tower sequence, roughly halfway through the film, it kind of then happens again, and it ends the way that kind of we we got to in in the middle half. And musically, this cue is almost like the same thing repeated twice. So I think that's a really good point to because touch it, on. Because it, it also gives us the opening um, couple of notes of the love theme, doesn't it, as it mm. moves on? Am I correct in that? It does. It's kind of must, you know, beneath sort of uh, the orchestration of all these swirling violins. Oh, yeah, totally. Sort of, uh, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a sort of horn line in the middle that kind of does go... Yeah, um, but it is—it's slowly kind of presented to us. Well, let's um, now that we've we've mentioned the uh, mm. you know the the love theme, let's let's move on to that. 
So definitely the, the the biggest showcase of the love theme is in a well a scene and, and a cue that's described as the scène d'amour, the well, the love scene really in French, I suppose. Um, and uh, this is the sequence which is really key, where um, actually in the notes that Hitchcock wrote for Bernard Herrmann on the um, on the script, uh, he would write extensive notes for his composers to say, "Oh, this is what you might want to write um, for this scene for the scène d'amour." He basically just says. Uh, uh, we'll just have you and the camera uh, to Herman because there's no dialogue really in this sequence once it reaches a certain point and then it's just the music takes over and the camera takes over and we hear the the, 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 the fullest performance the most hysterical to use that word I suppose which is definitely one that's been associated with Vertigo's obsessions um, the, the most hysterical, over the top, emotional beautiful performance of this love theme so we'll hear that now So there we have it. I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, I, I you know a lot of people accuse Herman of writing really cold music. Uh, I don't think you can possibly sustain that argument there. Um, it's it's incredibly heartfelt. I think. But it's a, it's also got a, a feeling of um, it's love, but also there's a deep sadness mm. in it. Uh, and you know nick how do you think he's he's sort of achieving that sort of mood of of romance it's not the romance of 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 indiana and and old hollywood this is sort of a very different sort of uh romantic style it's yeah and look it's i mean that whole section you just played is entirely the first and second violins so we're only kind of using you know a portion of the string section um and they're sort of they're split what we call divisi or divided um into you know really sort of high register close harmonies so there's a lot of pushing and pulling and even though it is beautiful there is uh, there's an element of tension there and you could argue that because the whole bottom end of the orchestra is missing that we're sort of uh, Scotty is sort of I guess robbed of fulfillment you know he doesn't get the whole orchestra he just gets a bit of strings which is sort of ultimately where he ends up at the end of the film. And um, I mean, it's a great way to sort of start in a higher register and slowly, you know, as the cue builds and builds and builds, it gets fuller and fuller and fuller. But I think introducing it like that, yeah, it's sort of, it's lingering and it's not 
it's unfulfilled is how I feel. I think the other interesting thing about that performance as well is that generally for Herman uh, and his work with Hitchcock, uh, strings are not played with vibrato. Certainly for a lot of psycho, you know, they're, they're, they're I don't know what the technical term is. You'll probably be able to help me because I'm not a string player. But <laughs> without, Non-vibrato. Yeah, without vibrato, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's usually sort of the, the Herman sound is that really hard um you know sharp string sound whereas this is is lush it's beautiful it's definitely lots of vibrato going on here well look i i noticed something the other day which is that the opening kind of vertigo i guess sort of arpeggio is actually very similar to when we hear elements of this love theme which is kind of like a a slightly raised version so if you look at the first four notes and then lift them up a bit so we kind of get <laughs> so you know it's almost like this love theme or obsession theme is derived out of something quite not sinister but yeah this chord you know there, there's some there's tension going on here and nothing is settled um, so whether Herman thought of that I don't know, but it's it's something I, I, I yeah. noticed in there. That's brilliant. I yeah, you should. I think maybe you, you've heard uh, Andrew chuckling at my face then, because this is a score that I've written on extensively. I've written like an academic journal article on this, and I've, that's never occurred to me before. That's brilliant. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so Dan's going to resubmit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm going to change everything now. Yeah. Um, so there are a few sort of interesting points of comparison, I think, that we can make. Uh, with this theme um, is that, I mean, you know, certainly it's used and developed over the course of this film really interestingly, but um, I mean, I think Herman is taking deliberate influence from uh, a classical great, would you say, Nick? Yeah, um, I mean, look, many people have pointed out there are similarities to um, a piece of music from Tristan and Isolde by Richard Wagner, um, and specifically his it's like the last bit of music in the in the the opera um the Liebestod. um and nick the the reason the reason why this sort of really makes a lot of sense as well is because that particular story mm. um and that opera um it's a it's a really old myth a really old story from i think 12th century from memory mm. uh yep. and it it sort of tells the story of of what amounts to a love triangle um, but two sort of um, a, a hero and uh, his love who are essentially there's some kind of adultery going on normally in the, in the way it's told. And, mm. um, you know, the maybe a more well-known version of this to a lot of listeners would be the uh, King Arthur, um, Sir Lancelot, uh, Guinevere mm. and, um, and King Arthur sort of love triangle. And um, at some point, you know, their their love sort of goes bad and, and there's often a love potion, which sort of gets a little bit off track here from Vertigo. But there is, at its sort of most macro level, this is a version, um, or at least touching on the themes of Tristan and Isolde. And, mm. and so, therefore, Herman, uh, you know, harking back to that, that great Wagnerian opera mm. um, makes yeah, a lot of sense. Deliberate. Very deliberate, yeah. yeah. Uh, two things there. I mean, one, you mentioned the love triangle. I mean, look, you could argue that really the love triangle is between Scotty, Madeline, and Judy, even though kind of <laughs> Judy and Madeline are kind of Absolutely. the same 
girl. Mm-hmm. In Scotty's mind, they're sort of not, and he's trying to, uh, I guess, somehow mix all three, mm. sort of a menage a trois a deux, <laughs> <laughs> sort of three, yeah. three into two. But the other thing is that Liebestod actually means love death. Like that's a direct translation of it, mm. and it's perfect for this film Absolutely. where, I mean, Scotty is kind of in love with a dead woman. Mm. And he's trying to bring that dead woman to life through another girl or another another lady, <laughs> and so all that kind of symmetry yeah, is is perfect. Is perfect, mm. and not to mention the fact that I mean the the Tristan chord, right? This is this is the thing in Wagner studies or whatever you want to call it. I mean, the, the idea is with that is that it it is incapable of resolving really, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Nick, Nick, you're probably better at explaining this to me, but but the idea is that. If you take that to vertigo, I mean, it's yet another spiral, right? It's a musical spiral that just continues going round and round in circles. It, it can never sort of continue along a single plane. Yeah. And look, I mean, a lot of this cue and Herman's score does does kind of spiral and just build and never kind of... Uh, I mean, you know, it often goes up. Uh, and then back down. Back up. Sort of, it's a bit kind of aimless. It's mm. romantic, but it's just it doesn't know where it's going to end, and then you know it sort of continues. It's sort of up, up, down, down, um, and later in this cue, especially um, where this rhythm ba ba di da ba ba di ba ba, and uh, Herman just it kind of goes on a a, a developmental tangent. It's really. It doesn't know where oh, it's going to end. You didn't get there, Nick. <laughs> I was waiting. Uh, you got right to the resolution. <laughs> but I, I, I digress. I don't think yeah. it resolves. It just sort of yeah. it spirals into phantasmagoria. Yeah. You know, Scotty's fantasy. It, it never really kind of lands, as, as far as I'm concerned. But look, going back to Liebestod, let's let's play a few examples of the Wagner and the Hermann and just compare what these kind of similarities we're talking about. So first up, we'll um they'll we'll look at some of the the shimmering kind of music. So here's Wagner going straight into Hermann. Vertigo. So you can just see, even orchestrationally, there's a sort of, there's a bit of a rise, and those tremolo strings are sort of, you know, they're, they're starting the build um, slowly, slowly. And tremolo um, means, uh, Nick? Tremolo means to sort of um, move rapidly the violin or, or string bows um, in very quickly to create a sort of shimmering sound. Yeah, which is how you get um, that sort of... I, I can't, yeah. can't do a, a vocal tremolo, yeah. but I tried. Oh, that, was, that was good, yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> if we're ever down one violin, we'll get you in. Thank you. <laughs> good. Um, then we have, I guess I can call it a, a chromatic build. 
Um, it's the orchestra, again, sort of feeling a bit aimless, but building in sort of increasingly changing modulations. So again, let's hear the Wagner and then a similar passage by Herman. Vertigo. So I've denied you the the climax again. <laughs> um, and just just as a third, I guess, comparison or interesting anecdote on the side, um, I want to play you a bit of Ludovic Borse's original score for the artist. Now oh, we may no, we, we may know that the artist was a controversial film because they basically used the entire Bernard Herrmann uh, scene de mort cue in the big climax of that film, and uh, Kim Novak, who plays Judy slash Madeline uh, in Vertigo, went on the record as I think decrying musical rape. Mm. Um, and uh, for which she was heavily criticised by rape support groups. Really, like it's. I mean, it's a uh, trivialising yeah. use of that term. But yeah, but I mean, I, I get the complaint. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, you know, this this was used as a temp score by the director in the artist, and it kind of stuck. Um, I mean, the sad thing is the the composer wrote his own cue for this scene, and um, I'm going to play a bit, and you can hear obviously where. You know, he, he got his inspiration f- for. So this is a bit of Ludovic Borse's music for the artist in, in this similar scene where um, Cinder Moore was used. So again, there's that yearning, you know, it's growing. That similar rhythm is there. It's in three, four time. Um, yeah, and I thought that was sort of, to be honest, I would have loved to have seen the artist with his score in there. Mm. And he won best original score. He did, um, yes. And I guess the controversy was uh, how much, uh, I mean, look, I, I loved his score, but you sort of wonder how much of the use of the Herman mm. swayed Swayed the voters. Mm. Who knows? And certainly, um, there was a, there was a great website that was set up after that where you could um, the, it was a little web tool where you could insert Bernard Herrmann's music over any scene uh, in you know that they provided you know about a hundred scenes from different films where you could <laughs> put the sender more over the top of it and see how much of an improvement it made. It was, but I mean, so this is really interesting, and this is really interesting you bring this up because this is one of my strong interests in in Bernard Herrmann's music is the way that he himself sort of repeats ideas and, and, and develops ideas across other films. So um, just to remind you of that main melody that we have in Sendermore, uh, here, here we go. Here's the theme from Vertigo, the love theme. So we've got that. 
Then there are a few interesting th- things that happen. So in a film that precedes this, we have uh, in in The Wrong Man, which is a film about a man being falsely accused of a crime, would you believe? Um, <laughs> that's one of the other earlier collaborations between Herman and Hitchcock. Um, we have this this theme that depicts a sort of melancholy love between the lead character and his wife and she eventually actually goes insane and is put in an actual uh, sanitarium and so this is the music that's used throughout the film to depict this here we go Okay, so there's that, and I sort of feel like that's maybe where it originates from, um, and that's sort of where he's starting to play around with a lot of the same musical ideas. But it's definitely not the same. But there's there's some similarities there. But then what happens? This is fascinating for me. What happens is after Vertigo, in the very next film, in 1959, uh, Hitchcock and Herman are making North by Northwest. Now I'm going to just play you this cue here called The Reunion, where already the love theme in North by Northwest is quite similar to what we have in Vertigo, and you'll notice that similarity immediately. But then what happens, and I'll sort of point it out over the top, is we actually shift straight into Vertigo. It's a direct quotation. So here we go. So now what's interesting about this is this is played in the scene, uh, uh, if, if you've seen North by Northwest, this is played in the scene where Cary Grant's character reunites with a woman who has been lying to him in a hotel room. Now, if you were to sort of, you know, <laughs> that, that is in broad, broad strokes what is happening in Vertigo when that theme is invoked. And so I think what Herman is doing is he's saying, hey, you remember this? This is a theme that happens in Hitchcock films, so I'm not going to bother writing new music for it. In fact, I'm going to point it out. I'm going to say, hey, this is this is this little thing that's that's happening that's repeated here. And do you think he's um, creating his own sort of musical language yeah. um, through those films? I think so. Is he doing is he doing a James Horner? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, no. Almost I, exactly the same, Nick. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, there's a, there's an interview with um, Bernard Herrmann where uh, Leslie's a who was uh, an interview with, like, I think the, the Village Voice or a, a New York newspaper, um, asks him, you know, so what, what's going on when you, you know, sort of quote yourself? Um, and Herman's response, and Bernard Herman was a very angry sort of guy. His response is has to be typed out in all capital letters um, because he's so <laughs> irate at the suggestion that he's ripping himself off. Um, he says, "You know, it sounds like me because it happens to be me." Uh, is 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 in the in the transcript what? and sort of gets quite 
annoyed by this. Uh, but I, I mean, I think, you know, I think he is being deliberate because it's too similar not to be a, a point of similarity. And a few people have pointed this out of the years. One thing that hasn't been noticed that I've noticed myself, I, I think not many people have pointed this out, is that this happens again in 1966. So this is seven years after North by Northwest in their final film, Torn Curtain, as I've mentioned a few times before. I love Torn Curtain. I think it's a, it's a totally underrated Hitchcock film. It's it's very bizarre and it's a pity that we can't hear it with the complete uh, Herman score. Um, it was aborted about halfway through and he was fired. Um, and so he only wrote an, uh, about half of it. It's subsequently been uh, recorded and restored, but he didn't write all of the film. And so, sorry, Dan, can I mm-hmm. can I just blow my own trumpet here? Go, go for it, When please. we had the uh, a live performance uh, with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, we did the uh, Hitchcock and Herman show, which you were a guest at, which is mm-hmm. great. Uh, and we performed um, a restoration of... Herman's score to some of the scenes from Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. which could have been, it probably wasn't the first, but it would have been one of one of the first mm. times that the score had ever been uh, played to the picture. So we had yeah. the had the screen up, and we we put torn you know scenes from Torn Curtain up there and played Herman's score. And my lord, is it sort of amazing and creepy and bizarre all at the same time yeah so the i mean the the studio bosses wanted what they called a a beat soundtrack which was really i mean what they mean by that is a poppy sort of youth music um sort of thing which they didn't get with the replacement score either um but you know uh herman was obviously not going to deliver on that um but i just while the music's fresh in your mind i'm just going to play this sequence so this is once again uh we have a couple uh, the, the, the gender roles are reversed this time. We have a husband who we think, and in, in fact the roles have been slightly switched in that we think the husband has been spying, or, or rather the, the wife thinks the husband has, has joined the Soviet Union and you know betrayed everything that he believes in. And this is the scene where he takes her aside. This is Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, takes Julie Andrews aside, and there's no dialogue. We don't hear any of it. It's shot from afar. But the assumption is because she, you know, sort of breaks down and hugs him that he's finally revealing to her, actually, no, I'm a double agent. Uh, and in this moment, we hear this. So this is the main torn curtain love melody that I'm just going to play a little bit of, but you can hear similarities. That's it, really. Um, but it's just mm. this lovely little quotation that he's saying, hey, I remember this. I remember this theme of sort of betrayed lovers uh, coming together that we've seen in Hitchcock films before. And, you know, why not, why not chuck it in? I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on to the, uh, some of the, the maybe uh, sub-themes, I guess we'd call this. But mm. there is a reoccurring um, a rhythm and certainly a, a you know, theme and, that is attached to it uh, that's 
based around an ostinato, which is a repeating rhythmic or melodic pattern. And uh, this is sort of like a real sort of Spanish influence in the film, and it's used a lot when uh, you see Carlotta with the Spanish background. Obviously, you've also got the Spanish elements with the monastery. Uh, Dan, what can you can you tell me about this? Well, I mean, bit? so it, it, it goes through a few different versions in the film. We first start off when Scotty is trailing Madeline in, in the cue title, Scotty Trails Madeline, uh, <laughs> where um, we, we hear the beginnings of this uh, sort of, I guess, watching I guess is is what we associate. Yeah, I with always feel story. like it's it's like the detective. Yeah, thing, yeah, you know? yeah, it's definitely. him. It's him, sort of, you know, creeping. Definitely, mm. yeah. So here we go. And so it sort of continues to develop, and that main sort of rhythm, the dun 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 dun, is passed around the orchestra in different sections, and you have that sort of slight melody over the top that's 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 thrown around to a few different things, and then it once Madeline goes and sits in front of the portrait of Carlota Valdez, who's this this you know supposedly distant relative that uh, you know she inherits the psychosis or whatever it is at the heart of the film from um, and sort of believes that she's reincarnated as her it takes on this this Spanish vibe uh, so here we go So here we have that similar effect of the music being passed around the orchestra in different sections, although the, the harp is the steady point here of keeping that, that rhythm going, that dum, 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 dum. And it reaches probably its strongest incarnation uh, when uh, Scotty is having his nightmare uh, and he's sort of dreaming about these, these figures. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> Sort of continues on like that, and that's that's definitely the strongest that it gets. And it, you know, that real dum 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 dum. And I said Spanish before, and I, you know, I think this is this is something that's really interesting. So it's, I mean, it's an it's a habanero, isn't it, Nick? It's it's that that traditional sort of dance rhythm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's well disguised because the music doesn't feel Spanish. Mm. Um, but of course, you know, the most obvious example is is from the score to Carmen, the opera. Um, so I guess that's one of those, I guess, cultural rhythms that sort of is just associated with with Spain. And yeah, Bernard Herrmann is appropriating it because, like you mentioned, Carlota Valdez is of Spanish descent. 
and it's you know it's subtle enough, but it's it's a reason to have it there, and it's certainly got its um, element of fire in the belly, especially in that nightmare scene where he sort of transformed it into something quite quite terrifying as opposed to the much more simple sneaky unsure and hesitant version mm. um, earlier on in the, in the piece and do you guys feel that it, that in that nightmare scene or that n- nightmare cue when the strings really do bum bum ding dun, bum mm. ding, there is a there is a feel in my you know in my head that it sort of harks to the the psychoness of the rit rit rit, like yeah. there's a similar sort of um, the strings hitting that high note, mm. and it's really unpleasant. It's yeah. very different, of course. It's not a not the same sure. sort of scene, mm. but there is using that sort of uh, stabbing strings mm. to the screech. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think just because that top note isn't a nice D, it's sort of it's got a bit of dissonance in there. It's a bit of a, a tonal clash of semitones up there to really make it yes scream like you mentioned. Yeah, mm. actually, I, I had a little example here. Um, that earlier cue when uh, when she's uh, Madeline sitting down and looking at the uh, the painting, and we we first hear that sort of uh, the habanera rhythm uh, in the background. It reminded me of a Ravel piece actually, which has a very similar mood. And uh, I thought I'd just play you. Uh, it now it's called Peace on Form de Habanera, which I must apologize to French <laughs> speakers <laughs> out there with my pronunciation. But uh, this is actually um, Branford Marsalis uh, playing on this, and uh, I think it evokes a very similar mood. Here it is. Now, uh, that theme could have been used in a much happier movie. <laughs> yeah. Like if, if, if that was like a really lovely scene where Madeline was maybe, <laughs> you know, looking at a, a, a beautiful picture and, and mm. maybe they were falling in love, that mm. perhaps would have been the cue. But we get this sort of uneasy version mm. of it where we have a similar vibe, but uh, it's, you know, uh, tonally, it's mm. far more creepy. I think that example you played, it's it's spot on. I mean, it's it sounds very close to to what Bernard Herrmann's doing. And I mean, we should explain musically what he's basically doing is creating what we call a pedal, where there's this sort of relentless um, constant, which is the note D. And you could argue that I mean, D is like the note of vertigo. It opens the score. You know, it's at the top of the chord there. It's in this um, sort of Spanish cue. You know, and it's the top note of the of the love theme. So you know, Herman's really kind of—it's um, like Herman's obsessing over this note, just like Scotty's obsessing over the women in the film. <laughs> um, and I think that's really interesting. I love it. Mm. I mean, the 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 idea of ostinato uh, in general is something that Herman really plays with throughout all of his, well, not all, but a, a huge amount of. Um, 
his collaborations with Hitchcock. Um, I actually um, was looking into a little bit of this um, just to see sort of where it comes from. The first film that they did together, uh, The Trouble with Harry, actually contains a track called Ostinato. Uh, and uh, just, just to show you what this sounds like, it's a little bit different from this, but you can hear the same ideas are being played with. Trouble with Harry is uh, a comedy. It is a very, very strange comedy, um, but it's a comedy nonetheless. Um, but that is definitely in one of the more serious sequences in the film where some people are trying to hide uh, a body. Um, and in uh, it continues past Vertigo uh, into Psycho. It's only in one scene in Psycho, and that is when Norman Bates is looking through the peephole um, at Marion. And I think that's really interesting. I'll I'll just play an excerpt of that now. As it continues, the strings later uh, go on to be pizzicato, so providing an even stronger rhythm. But um, again, I mean, I think this is a beautiful use of it in Psycho because it's it's one of the most subtle and quiet pieces of music, almost still in a way, in a very violent score. And yet it's this, it's this scene when Norman sees Marion that makes him go crazy. Uh, and it's sort of, it's this scene that causes all the violence of Psycho to occur. And he chooses that, that little motif to, to underscore. And is it the feel of, like, because he starts to obsess over her as well, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, you're picking up on a theme. So the final <laughs> occurrence um, that I'm just going to include is from Marnie, which, again, I think is a, a criminally underrated Hitchcock film. Uh, it's, again, very bizarre, but, you know, what good film isn't? Uh, and this is uh, early in the film where Marnie, who is a kleptomaniac, she she has to steal... Um, played by Tippi Hedren, who was in uh, The Birds. Um, she's watching uh, the process that Sean Connery uh, undertakes uh, at the you know to to withdraw money from the safe. She's working at a at a I think a firm with Sean Connery, and so she's watching essentially the process um, by which she has to repeat to steal. And so here we go. And so, I mean, you know, it sort of continues much in that same way. And I, I guess I don't want to give the impression that Herman's just constantly ripping himself off. There's a lot of music to his Hitchcock scores that is very different and unique to each film. But there are just these little moments, mostly associated with the love theme and then this ostinato that I think he's kind of making a point. So with all of these scenes, as you said before, Andrew, they're all about sort of obsessing, about watching, about the character 
who we're sort of occupying the world of their own um, uh, obsessions and imbalances in a way, uh, their preoccupations. Um, and, and, and in the moments where they're sort of visually revealed to us, most of these scenes don't have dialogue. We get this little, this little ostinato. Um, and I just, I don't know, I think it's an, another really, really interesting element across the, the Herman and Hitchcock uh, film collaborations. Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out we're, we're grabbing all these little excerpts from all over the place, and in some ways that is no different to us talking about uh, you know themes that Hitchcock mm. puts into his movies across most of his films. Yep. It's, it's no different to um, you know authors having uh, character types that they repeat mm-hmm. throughout. Mm. So I, I think this is just the musical version of it. it just mm. for some reason, people. Uh, just expect that if you write music, it always has to yeah. be 100% original yeah. somehow. And, you know, but I, I actually think that these little bits of, um, you know, repeated music is, is language. It's, mm. it's um, conveying, you know, uh, certain moods and things to us. And he's setting up a sort of sound world and a language and, and a style mm. that is his. Well, exactly right. There's um, actually, funnily enough, Hitchcock accused Herman of self plagiarism. Uh, late in their collaboration, Again. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's copping it all the yeah, time, yeah. Uh, but but directly in uh, uh, before um, the final score after Marnie, um, he said that it was very similar to another uh, Herman score called Joy in the Morning, which is a very very forgettable film. But mm. um, anyway, but I think I mean the last word on this I think has to go to Hitchcock himself, who in a beautiful interview where the interviewer said, "Hey, you know, like what about the Hitchcock blonde and all these." themes and ideas that reoccur across all of your movies and he said um, you know in that imperious Hitchcock way he said um, self-plagiarism is style <laughs> and I mean that's what this Which is, is true. This, is, this is what is going on with, with Herman it's style I think Right well um, I think we've got a few more minutes just mm-hmm. to perhaps look at a, a couple of maybe favourite bits um, or maybe sort of little outlying moments in the film. And, and Nick, I wondered if I could throw it over to you. Do you have something that you want to uh, put out there as one of your sort of favourite little cool moments of this? Look, I've got a couple of little bits that I, I've sort of noticed have resonated um, both forwards and backwards in time. So I there's a bit just watching it the other day when I'm like, I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. And it's Bernard's use of, um, I guess, um, polychords, um, almost like a sort of... Uh, crescendo decrescendo version so I'll play a bit from the first tower sequence going straight into a much more contemporary film but I think you'll see there's some similarities here have a listen Now, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching far and wide here, but yeah, I just, I heard that, I'm like, that sounds like The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, while, um, while you were playing that, Nick, um, in case people haven't, haven't cottoned on, we are recording this in different countries, and mm-hmm. uh, so Dan and I are in a, in a room, and you're in, a, in a, your room, we mm-hmm. can't see each other. Now, when you played the Herman uh, score at the start, I instantly started <laughs> miming Matrix to yeah. Dan, because yeah. I could hear it instantly, as soon yeah. as you put it out there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then we were laughing to each other. And so. there 
there is there is a lineage in a way in that Don Davis, the composer of uh, the Matrix films, was mentored by John Williams as a composer, and John Williams was mentored by Bernard Herrmann. So, yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah, well, great. the other the other Herrmann, I guess. Um, uh, reincarnation, of course, is Danny Elfman, and uh, I was reading a quote about about this film where someone described um, the love theme when it first appears in the first tower sequence. It builds and evolves, and it turns into a waltz. Um, there's a church, and eventually becomes, and I quote, a dance of death. And as soon as I th- I heard the words uh, church, waltz, and dance of death, I of course thought of this. Now, that, of course, is Elfman's score to Batman. Mm. Um, but interestingly, Elfman, um, when the Psycho remake came out, um, oh, do you guys see that I, back no, in the 90s with Vince yes, Vaughn? Yes. Oh, Not interested. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no. But, um, I mean, Elfman was sort of responsible for piecing, you know, Herman's score together. Mm. And, you know, his agitated kind of style and... Um, Arpeggios. Uh, even... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he mm. he loves all that kind of mm. um, yeah Herman stuff. Well, well, more than that, I mean, he also did the score for the the film called Hitchcock uh, about the the making of Psycho. Oh, he did too. Mm. Yep, he did too. So there's there's direct links there, definitely. Right, I I thought I'd um, uh, jump in with a couple of of my little moments that I thought were interesting, especially when when watching the film again uh, recently. Is uh, so we have this this Herman score that we've spent the last hour and a bit talking about, and it really does represent the inner mind of our protagonist, and and he's sort of um, uh, you know what's going on inside his head mostly. And then there are a couple of moments within the film where there is no score, and then there is music presented uh, from um, inside the movie. So the one that sort of really sticks out is uh, just after uh, Madeline dies the first time. Scotty is in a, I guess he's in like some kind of asylum or mm. or something, mm. um, borderline. He's in he's in hospital, and uh, what's the name of his? Um, the other woman in it? Midge. Midge, that's yeah. right. Um, he's he's ex-fiancé. Yeah. Ex-fiancé, yeah. It's which is sort of thankless role. I think Barbara Belgetta is fantastic in that, in that role, but it's it's such a it's such a difficult part because she's totally neglected by Scotty in the film. Yeah, he's, he's quite a bit yeah. of a yeah. nasty guy to her, really. Yeah. Um, anyway, so she's, you know, she's sort of trying to help him recover. And at this point, there is no score. It's almost like his brain has broken and there is no longer any obsessing. There's no longer anything. And even looking at uh, the way that the Jimmy Stewart is, is playing it, he's sort of just looking blankly at everybody. Mm. And there's no score. And in contrast to this, they play um, uh, Mozart. They refer to it as, as Mozart on the record player as being a great way of potentially sort of uh, rehabilitating some of the patients. And it's actually um, uh, Mozart Symphony 34, uh, the Andante movement. And I thought I'd just play just a... Just a wee little bit of it.
So, as you can see, it is so, or here, it is so outside of where the rest of the movie sits that I actually think that that use in that moment is actually really fantastic. I think it's very deliberate, and I think in in many ways it represents, um, in the same way that Midge also represents, the normalcy. So here's a normal person, almost the only normal person in the movie, Mm. and she's playing a very normal sounding Mozart record to really juxtapose the madness that is going on in his mind. And it's just so stark and um, sort of a bit of a wake-up call of actually this is what normal people do. And and he's sort of looking blankly at her. And I thought that's sort of a, a really cool little moment there. And and something else that, and it, sorry, sorry, after you go, Nick. And it's interesting how Midge sort of says to the doctor when yeah. she's talking to him that, you know, maybe the Mozart can help bring him back to you know, out of his depressed state. Mm. Um, Absolutely. And it's interesting that, you know, even the normal music, like Scott is rejecting being normal. Mm. He's so obsessed that he doesn't want to go back to a normal life. And that's why Mozart can't help you. Yeah, and, and what, do, what? It, it never helped me in year 12 for my <laughs> final year exams, but that's another story. And, and what does she say at the end of that scene? She says, no, I don't think Mozart's going to help at all. And then takes the record away. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's it's a it's a it's a clear admission by the film that no, like this is not the musical world that we're dealing with. <laughs> and uh, this is unrelated, but I, you know, we, we're talking about for a lot of this the the fact that so much of these melodies don't really resolve; they continue to sort of spiral around and or sort of descend further and further into madness. And the first time I hear a resolution in this film, and maybe Dan, you can tell me, oh no, it happened, you know, twenty minutes before, um, is on the beach scene when uh, uh, Madeline and uh, Scotty uh, have their first kiss. And we hear some of the um, uh, the love theme, but it actually finishes on a almost corny hmm. sort of uh, a major chord at the end as a bit of a ta-da, they got there. <laughs> and um, I thought it might be sort of fun to, to actually hear this melody um, resolved for the first time. How overt is that? (laughs) No, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it it works as well because I think, you know, I think that positive music, it just reinforces the the musical world. Like we're in a a fantasy of Scotty's making. Yeah. He's the only person here who believes this is the happy moment, you know, Mm. like... Madeline certainly doesn't believe that, mm. and the, the the audience to an extent probably sees this as false. And certainly Hitchcock is thinking this is I don't know this this isn't normal. What's happening here? So I yeah I I think it's a beautiful use of that almost sarcastically. And it does come up later <laughs> in the um in the film as well. In fact, they I'd be curious to know your take on how the the last note of the film works. Dan. Well, were you going to talk about that? Yeah, I mean I think that's that's a really interesting thing to I, I guess almost end on actually because mm. I. I mean, so we have the... I mean, we are really getting into spoiler territory now if you were ever holding off listening to this, but um, the film ends so wonderfully with, you know, uh, Judy slash Madeline running up the tower that she, quote, air, giant air quotes, died on, uh, the, the you know, halfway through the film. 
uh, and she's running up again. Uh, and, you know, there's all these nightmare recollection, you know, revisited trauma going on. There's all the vertigo smash zooms and harps, you know, twirling against each other. Um, and then we finally get up to the top. And then this moment of pure Hitchcock, macabre brilliance, uh, a nun just appears out of nowhere. You know, we've seen no workers at this church <laughs> um, or this this monastery for, for ever. And then a nun is just, you know, in the worst possible spot at the worst possible time. And of course, we only see her in silhouette and she scares the absolute bejesus out of Judy Madeline, who falls off and dies again. And we, and we get this, firstly, we get this beautiful little bit of organ, uh, which I'm, I'm going to play it in a moment. I'm going to start it from the organ, just because I think it's, it's quite unsettling. Um, and, and it's like it's an apparition from outside of the score in a way. But the final shot of the film is of Scotty standing on the edge, looking down to where Madeline Judy has just died. And that's it. The, the movie ends there with him looking down. Uh, and it's sort of like the movie is saying, well, what happens next? You know, And it's kind of an open ending. But I think the music is a little bit more precise than that. So I'm just going to play it from the organ onwards and see what you think. What do you think is uh, what do you think the music is telling us there? <laughs> There's a nail in the coffin. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think he's looking down with purpose. I think that's what the music is telling us. Unfortunately, yeah. And look, you know, the, the whole sequence leading up to that, Scotty's saying, you know, this is my second chance. You're mm. my second chance. Mm-hmm. And that music is basically saying, mate, you've had your second <laughs> chance. That's it. Yeah. Sorry, no more. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a morbid. I mean, that's that's a Hitchcock film, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that's just it's the perfect way to sort of almost end our discussion because it's it's another example of how Hitchcock and Herman worked so well together to the point where maybe Herman tells us a little bit more about what's happening in this scene. Uh, than than Hitchcock does or was willing to, and they sort of you know they allow it to be open ended, but you know Herman's Herman's got his own commentary to make. It's not just about what Hitchcock is telling him to do here. Yeah, you know I, I heard this film compared to the Leaning Tower of Pisa in that it's got its <laughs> problems, and uh, you know it's it's got I think someone said it's got a stupid murder plot. It's got <laughs> Jimmy Stewart's too old. Kim Novak can't really act. Yeah. And everything's just like a long he, he Bernard about Herman double, music video. Double her age, yeah, yeah, uh, no, yeah. exactly. But despite all its imperfections, um, you know, can you imagine straightening the leading tower of Pisa? Mm. You know, it, it wouldn't be the same. Mm. And there's a reason it's it's rewarding and is one of the greatest films ever made. And um, I think Bernard Herman uh, absolutely deserves equal credit for for doing it mm. in, in this case. Yep, 
I definitely agree. And I mean, that's one of the things about their collaboration is um, uh, Joseph Stefano, who wrote um, Psycho, the the script for it anyway, um, said that Hitchcock gave Herman more credit than any of his other collaborators um, that he worked with. And Hitchcock was notoriously reticent about saying, you know, somebody else might have had an impact on the film rather than Hitchcock himself. Uh, So for that to happen uh you know i think it shows that they you know before before the breakup which i don't know maybe we'll talk about that in a later episode but before the breakup they um they had a huge amount of respect for each other uh and and it goes to showing the 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 work that they produced i think that brings us to the end of our analysis of hitchcock and herman's vertigo we hope you enjoyed yourself and if you want to continue obsessing (laughs) about our uh, little podcast here then please press subscribe and uh, write us a review on itunes and it really that sort of stuff really helps us get the word out there uh, so that that more people can come and enjoy this Um, and if you you enjoy it please uh, tell your friends um, uh, but also feel free to uh, get in touch with us on twitter or on instagram both at Art of the Score. We're happy to answer any questions you might have or maybe you want to request a score that we'll do in the future and a few people have already started doing that so uh, we're looking forward to checking out some of those suggestions. But until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson. That's Dan Golding. Thank you very much. And he, all the way in New York, is Nicholas Buck. Thanks for having me, guys. See you next time. And this was Art of the Score.